Thank you, Joe. Um, if this is your first time here, I promise you didn't walk into something uh, in which we're going to be serving Kool-Aid later. Um, you walked into a community that takes the ancient traditions pretty seriously. And um, we have, for a while, been going through the Apostles' Creed as a community, um, for it is a great summary of our faith. It's not scripture, but it is a great summary of the story arc of Scripture, drawing our attention to the triune nature of our God, revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this poem that draws our heart like a pledge of allegiance, rightly pointing us to where our loyalties and allegiance lie in the kingdom of God and with Christ. And uh, we are towards the end of the second article. So if you think of each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're in the last frame of the second article. We are talking about Christ. And um, it's kind of fitting that we took a break to kind of refresh our vision series between Christ's ascension and Christ's coming. For that is actually the space we exist within as the church. That our Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, yet we wait on his return. We wait in anticipation for our God's return back to his people. And so we wait for the moment in which Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. American Christians have a unique obsession with the end times. You can chuckle. It's funny. We have a unique obsession with all things, end of day, end times, last things. We are constantly obsessed. Like, if it's an apocalyptic movie, you better bet I'm probably going to be there. Like, we have this obsession from doomsday predictions to rapture anxiety. The return of Christ is a doctrine often obscured by exaggeration, anxiety, and speculation. It's often a doctrine that as I was talking to the worship team this morning, they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, the return of Christ and his judgment. And they're like, oh, really? Like, well, how are they supposed to plan a worship set around judgment? It's a doctrine that is often shrouded with fear and anxiety, and yet this is not how the New Testament talks about it. But American Christians, we have a weird obsession with all things in time. And one of the reasons we have that is an influence of something called dispensationalism. Say that six times fast dispensationalism. Some of you may be familiar with this theological system. Some of you may be like, Alex is talking to a seminary class. No, I promise this will make sense, and I promise you uh, will find this interesting. 
This is a system developed in the early 1800s. Dispensationalism broadly divides biblical history into seven ages or dispensations. So if you were to hold um, the biblical text in your hands, the dispensationalist would kind of say, here are the seven ages in which God interacts with humanity. And in each age, God interacts differently. Preface, before I get much further, this is not a good theology. So I'm describing not as things should be, but a misconception around a bad system of theology. Uh, John Darby is known for formalizing this system, but it was Cyrus Schofield and his infamous Schofield Reference Bible that popularized the system in the U.S. Uh, no joke, three years ago, my grandfather, who loves, to, like now that we are in pastoral ministry, loves talking to me about all things Bible, Scripture. He was so excited to show me his new Schofield Reference Bible, and uh, I was like, I love this for you. Um, I don't know what to, like, <laughs> he's in his late 80s. I'm not going to try and explain how dispensationalism has been disproven through the years. He loves Jesus desperately, um, and so I'm going to leave it at that. But Darby's teaching through Schofield caught like wildfire in the U.S., and though it's widely been discredited, its influence can still be seen in American church circles. Um, and there's three ways that you might see this crop up in maybe the old country church that your grandparents take you to or just kind of some different communities around town. Three ways it still crops up. Uh, first, Judaism is treated as the secret to ancient or hidden knowledge. So there's a little bit of a weird infatuation with Judaism. Um, second, it's reading of biblical prophecy uh, reads it kind of predictively. So it looks at all the Hebrew prophets as, okay, this means this, this means that. They look at the Hebrew prophets and current events and see the two things playing off each other. And then third, it has a theology of escape in an event called the rapture. So I want to quickly cover each of these things because you'll discover, unfortunately, dispensationalism finds its way into our churches pretty often in a unique way. First, Judaism is treated as the secret to ancient knowledge or hidden knowledge. In dispensational circles, ancient Judaism is treated like a decoder ring to knowledge uh, nothing has been discovered until it's compared to Judaism. And while our faith, our story, and our Christ have their roots in ancient Judaism, it is not necessarily a key to deciphering the mysteries of the globe. Um, if you've ever watched like a televangelist, and if their background is Israel, that's a dead giveaway. Um, but you'll often see like ancient Israelite artifacts um, on their desk, or like these items are no longer like relics or items of the biblical text. These become totems of a, of a way in which they begin to decipher Christianity through this particular lens. I grew up in a church uh, where we regularly had a self-described expert in Old Testament prophecy come every single year 
and he would take the current events and put them right next to the uh, prophecies of Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And he would basically give us this hidden knowledge that he, a self-taught Hebrew expert, um, would tell us how everything is working together. There we go. Good job. Flawless. Flawless execution. So every year we would have this Hebrew expert come in and everything was doom and gloom. Everything was about here's how we know we're in the last few years of life on planet Earth. And as my anxiety rose, his book sales rose as well. It was this weird amalgamation of superstition and an attempt to be biblical, but it really turned into just more superstition. Within this framework, there is an unhealthy infatuation with ancient Judaism and um, Israel as a global political nation. Uh, It's this weird infatuation that often pops up. Now, as Christians, we obviously have a unique relationship with Judaism. So this isn't to discredit Judaism. This isn't to discredit um, the nation of Israel. This is just to say um, dispensationalism takes that to an extreme. Second, dispensationalism reads the biblical prophecies as predictive, predictive of our future, and they put them into a place and a role they were never intended to be used as. One of dispensationalism's core tenets is historical grammatical interpretation of everything in Scripture. So everything from Old Testament prophecies to the apostles' metaphors are not read as metaphors, but as actual items to be looked for. The red dragon in Revelation is not a metaphor. It is something to be looking for. This is obviously problematic, Um, because the Old Testament prophecies, um, what we call the prophetic literature, is um, apocalyptic literature. And so whenever I say apocalyptic, as Americans, we think all things end of days. But the ancients did not think of apocalyptic as the end, but rather as an unveiling. Apocalyptic literature is not about predicting what the future will be, but revealing how reality actually is. A great illustration of this is in The Wizard of Oz. When the curtain is pulled back, and it is not a great and powerful wizard, rather it's a little man pulling levers. Apocalyptic literature is about pulling back the veil on the powers of our day and realizing It's not a great dragon, it's bureaucracy. It's not this powerful supernatural evil, it's just humans making bad decisions. Apocalyptic literature is about pulling back the veil and revealing things as they are. The book of Daniel and Revelation in particular are both apocalyptic literature. More on that in a little bit. These biblical texts look into the future, but they are not a roadmap to the future. In part because these authors are writing critiques and subversive literatures about the governments that they lived under. And they did not have the privilege of a free press. So they write in metaphor and in story 
to try and veil their critique against the powers of their day. And then third, dispensationalism has a theology of escape in an event called the rapture, an event that was popularized by a series called Left Behind. Yes, I knew it. I recognized the PTSD in your eyes. I recognized the look of fear as soon as I said we're talking about the end times because you all read either Left Behind, the adult version, or the teen version. Either way, you read it and you had a lot of fear. Or you watched the movies. Oh, yeah, exactly. The theology of the rapture comes from one singular verse in the New Testament. One singular verse in 1 Thessalonians in which Paul uses the metaphor of going to meet our Lord in the air. He uses this turn of phrase that says we will be caught up and we will go meet our Lord in the air. This is a metaphor We are not going to just disappear. We are not going to fly off like spacemen, and the gravity is not going to be turned off because Paul imagines the followers of Jesus like an ancient city waiting for the arrival of their king. So in an ancient city, if you were expecting your monarch to come, you would have people poised on the ramparts looking out over the horizon and at the first sign of the traveling cloud, at the first sign of the flags, the first sign of the parade coming, all of the citizens in that city would go out to meet their monarch and they would return. Paul's metaphor is not about us flying up into the air and floating off to a place called heaven. His metaphor is about us being watchful and waiting for the arrival of our king to earth. It is not about escaping the realities of life on planet earth. It is about the healing of planet earth. This theological belief, in particular, has caused widespread anxiety about being left behind. I remember one particular Saturday morning where I could have sworn I missed the trumpet. Woke up, everybody was gone, they weren't answering their phone, and I'm like, I missed it. (laughs) Thank God I wasn't in a plane, right? Like... I was thoroughly convinced, and it was about 15 minutes of sheer panic, lots of prayer, like, just one more. Like, can I get, like, a, like a free pass? It was terrifying. In fact, this is such a common occurrence that there is something, shout out to Corbin for telling me this, there is certain mental health experts that have recently coined the phrase rapture anxiety to describe the specific religious trauma related to being left behind and thinking that somehow you watching George Lopez last night made it so you weren't going to land in heaven. Like this is crazy that such a theology has become embedded in our Christianity, and it comes from one singular metaphor. It comes from reading something out of the context it was meant to be read in. This theology of escape is not found in the teachings of Jesus. 
It is not found in the teachings of Paul. It is not found in the teachings of Luke. It is not found in the New Testament. Rather, the New Testament describes God's plan to restore his world, and that plan culminates in Christ's return. The temptation of dispensationalism is that it has black and white answers to everything. And I understand the impulse to have very clear lines of understanding. But on this topic in particular, there are not clear lines. There's a general teaching that we can have hope that our God will return. If there is anyone you talk to and they have a very strong preference on how these events are going to happen, they probably don't know what they're talking about. The New Testament is shrouded in a lot of ambiguity on this topic in particular. The New Testament has a lot of texts that almost seem contradictory. Hopefully that doesn't bother you too much. It has a lot of mystery around this. But as we talk about what it means for Christ to come again to judge the living and the dead, I'm going to do my best to give my best approximation as to what this means and why we can have hope in the return of Christ. So that brings us to our line from the Apostles' Creed. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. This idea of the Messiah's return and judgment is a theme throughout the biblical narrative. In the Old Testament, it is known as the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. This is the day in which God, Yahweh, would defeat all of Israel's enemies. The Hebrew prophets regularly mention the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, for they imagine a day in which their political foes, those who do violence to them, those who take over, those who burn their crops and pillage their villages, will be done away with, in which they will no longer live in violence, but in peace. In the New Testament, it goes by a few names, but maybe the two most prevalent are the parousia, Greek word, or the eschaton. Perusia means literally presence or coming. It's a theme that is very prevalent in the Advent season when our God comes to us in the form of an infant. The eschaton means last things. It is final, the final event of a divine plan. All three of these terms refer broadly to the idea that God is guiding all of history towards his ends. That God is using humans, that he is using the stream of history to guide it towards his good ends. Where his good creation will be liberated and healed from the corruption, decay, and abuse it has endured. It is the culmination of his plan, not just to save humanity, but to save all of creation. It is the world to come, and it is the world we long for. It is the kingdom of our good God. And the eschaton, the day of the Lord, the parousia, describe the moment in which that promised future explodes into our present. The biblical authors say it will come like a thief in the night. 
describes it in the vaguest of terms using poetry, metaphor, and hope. It is not specific. It is not detailed in indicating a date or a time. As N.T. Wright puts it, the New Testament's language about the future is a signpost pointing into the mist. It indicates that's the direction we're going, but we're really not sure what's on the other side. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus himself discourages guesses and date predictions for no one, not even the Son of Man, knows the date or the time. And while we do not know the time frame, we may cultivate a hope for the future knowing these three things. So if the details are, are unspecific and the details are ambiguous, there still are three things that we can know about Christ's future coming. First off, that one day Jesus will be personally present with his people on earth. Second, that death will be reversed. And third, all creation will be judged by our king. A brief word on each. First, Jesus will be present with his people. As I mentioned, Revelation is a scathing critique of the Roman Empire, comparing it to a red dragon. The Apostle John sees Rome as one more iteration of the evil humanity can inflict on one another. He's using imagery and metaphor to describe the brutality of the empire in which he existed within. He describes it not as boring bureaucracy, but as a devouring dragon. Because human governments can be more like monsters and slow-moving bureaucracies at time. And at the time of John's writing, followers of the way are being brutally executed by the Roman government, used for bloody entertainment because they insisted that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. And amid that horrific persecution, John has a vision of a day in which the rule of Caesar is replaced with the rule of Christ. This is what John writes in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The parousia literally means presence. We await a day in which our king will be present dwelling with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. There will be no separation. There will be no distance. He will be with us. Now, John would not, see, would not live long enough to see the fullness of that vision realized. In fact, almost 2,000 years have passed since that prediction was pinned, since that vision was pinned. But if there is anything clear about the nature of our God, it's that he is patient. 
He is unhurried, and not even death will halt his good purposes. For the second thing we can know about the coming of Christ is that at the eschaton, death will be reversed. Now, I'm not going to get into what all happens at the time of our death. Uh, We'll be covering that in a few weeks as we talk about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. What we're talking about here is life after life after death. So here's my humble attempt And I say humble because I spent a long time just wading through the New Testament's thoughts on death. And it's hard because death is also used as a metaphor um, to our spiritual life. We can spiritually feel dead. And so it's, it's a little difficult to come to a conclusion on all of its thoughts on death. But here is my very humble attempt. This is not gospel. Please don't quote me later. So you die. Your physical body decays. It returns to dust. And your personhood, maybe something like your psyche, goes to an intermediate place with Christ. But this is a temporary place of refreshing and rest until we experience the resurrection. For resurrection is always bodily. Resurrection always deals with flesh and blood. It always deals with this physical thing that we have. Resurrection is never disembodied. Resurrection is not you are Casper now floating through the cosmos. Resurrection is always flesh and blood. On the cross, there's a thief that says, you obviously don't deserve to be here. Will you remember me when the day your kingdom comes? And Jesus says to him, you will be with me this very day, not in the kingdom, but in paradise. Jesus is intentional to tell this man on the cross next to him that there is a difference between the kingdom that is coming and the paradise he will find himself soon in. For there is a distance of time between our death and the coming kingdom. Some think that our experience of that time between our death and the coming kingdom would be like a flash. And we won't even know it. We'll just wake up in the kingdom. Others suggest there is an intermediate place that we wait. Where our souls are refreshed and we become the type of people that can live in God's kingdom. And at the eschaton, all who have died will have their bodies restored to life. For resurrection is always bodily. It always involves flesh and bone restored from the decay of death. Romans 8, 11, Paul says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who was raised with Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Our experience in eternity will be flesh and blood. It will be in the bodies we now experience It will be flesh and blood. I emphasize this because in all of my teachings on the new, the the end of days, I always imagined heaven being very distinct from the way I experience life now. 
I always thought, well, I guess then I'll, I'll, I'll really love the worship song in the sky. I guess I will really love just singing songs all the time in this disembodied state. But the New Testament is emphatically clear that our experience in the kingdom of God will not be entirely unfamiliar to us. That in many ways, the life and the goodness we experience here and now will be carried over just infinitely better. And that's comforting. It's comforting to know that there is some semblance of continuity between my experience now and my experience in the future. The kingdom of God, your future and mine, is flesh and blood, not disembodied spirits. Now, the Apostle John, um, there's a few different theories on who will be resurrected from the dead. Um, But the Apostle John seems to believe that all people, believer and unbeliever, will be resurrected. This is John's account of Jesus' teaching in John 5, 25 through 29. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is here now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. At the coming of Christ, death will be reversed and everyone throughout human history will be subject to the judgment of Jesus. Now, the judgment of Jesus sounds like bad news. And to some degree, there is something sobering about thinking that the entirety of our life will be weighed. But throughout the biblical narrative, it is unanimous that this is good news. In a world of suffering, a world of natural disasters, war, disease, violence, in a world of mosquitoes, it only makes sense for a good God to judge, to discern, to sort. Throughout the biblical narrative, the coming judgment of Jesus is depicted as good news. Listen to what Psalm 98 declares. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Creation itself, the rivers that have been filled with pollutants, the forests that have been decimated, the the plains that have been littered, all of creation aches for one to set things right. 
All of creation longs for the day in which our God will restore his good creation from the damage that has been done to it. And Christ, like the good gardener, must rightly discern, judge between the flower and the weed. He must discriminate between what is useful for life and what chokes life. What is interesting, particularly in the writings of John, is that love and judgment are not depicted as separate acts, but as one. Take, for example, the most famous passage in all the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It goes on. I know you haven't heard the rest of this, but it goes on. <laughs> For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's what I want to say on the subject of judgment. As we make choices throughout our lives, we are constantly developing into the person that will either love the future kingdom of God or hate it. If the kingdom of God is a population of people living under the rule and reign of Christ that accepts his definition of good and evil, of beauty, of love, and human flourishing, many of us will love that. It will be the best version of reality that we can possibly imagine. It will be everything our heart yearns for made reality. But if we are the type of person that despises the very idea of living in the kingdom of God now, what makes us think we would feel any differently later? One could even say that the same place could be hell for one person and paradise for another. Within early Christian thought, um, there's this idea that heaven and hell might be the same place. This is a theory. Don't take it as gospel. It's a theory. Isaac the Syrian, a 7th century pastor, argued that all people are ultimately brought into the presence of God's love. But the power of love works in two ways. For some, that love is a joy, and for others, it is a torment. Teachers see this all the time. For some students, that literature class is an absolute joy. It is challenging their minds. It's engaging their intellect. And for others, reading Frankenstein, Beowulf, and The Great Gatsby is absolutely torturous. Some people spend their entire lives working, budgeting, and saving so that they can retire in Florida. Paradise for some. 
But for others, golf humidity and 20-foot pythons sounds like hell on earth. One place, two realities, based around the type of person we are becoming now. For some, the kingdom is paradise on earth, but some are so committed to the kingdom of self that this becomes torturous. I genuinely don't think Christ sends anyone to hell, but I think he honors human dignity. I think he honors our choices of life or death, of his reign or our own. The judgment of Jesus is not active retribution or cruel torture, but the reluctant giving us up to the consequences of our own decisions. When we choose what is right in our own eyes, our choices condemn us. We reject the kingdom of God for the kingdom of self. And all this is to say that our lives as apprentices of Jesus is a life of training to be the kind of person that deeply enjoys life in his kingdom. That our life of apprenticeship, our life of discipleship to Jesus is all about learning to live in the kingdom here and now and preparing ourselves for life in his future. Life in his kingdom. Worship team, if you want to join me on the stage. So what? Is all this talk about God's plan for the future, Christ's return and coming judgment, about tidying up our theology? Is it just about making sure our preaching and our teaching line up better with the book? I grew up fearing God's future. It was full of wrath, it was full of destruction, and it was full of a disembodied future. It was full of fear. And I genuinely prayed, God, don't come before this, this, and this. But as I've reread the New Testament, as I've tried to submit myself to the teachings of Jesus over and over again, my thoughts on this have shifted significantly. And God's future is not something to fear. It is something to long for. God's future is not something in which the way you understand yourself and the way you understand life and the work you are doing is done away with. I think it's his invitation into a world in which our hearts long for. Late night when you're imagining the best future possible, I think what God has in store for his future is better than that. It is everything your heart longs for plus. I grew up fearing God's future. Maybe some of you grew up knowing nothing about God's future. I grew up in an environment in which this is all we talked about. Some grew up in environments in which you never talked about God's future. But it is a, a missing component if you don't talk about it. This is an essential component of Jesus' gospel. The point is that when we have a better understanding of the future hope we have in Jesus, we might find a surprising vision of our present. 
If we have a better understanding of what God is destined to bring to us, we might have a better understanding of the world we live in here and now. To hope for a better future for this world is to hope for a better future for the poor, for the terminally ill, for the outsider, for the indebted, for the refugee, for the slave, for the paranoid, for the victim, for the hungry, for the underemployed, for the unemployed, for the despair, the despairing. To hope in a better future is to see a world of possibility exploding in our present. It is to hope for a better future for our wounded and wonderful world. And to work for a better world here and now is not a distraction from mission and evangelism. It is a central aspect of it. To work for the hope in the immediate, we might find surprising things about God's future. It is not a distraction from mission and evangelism. It is a vital, life-giving part of it. When Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, it always came with visual aids. It always came with healing the sick, restoring the dignity of those who had had it robbed from them. It always comes with a visual aid of this is my future promise. He offered an up-close presentation of what he was promising for our future. He made life better for people here and now, and he taught them to yearn for a future like what they were experiencing in his presence. So my simple hope is this, that you yearn for the future of God. My simple hope is that when you hear he will come again to judge the living and the dead, you will yearn for the moment in which the brokenness of our present life will be replaced with the presence of our King. Every week in microchurch, we confess the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. May this prayer mean more to you now than it's ever meant before. May this prayer be the words that articulate the ache in your soul for Christ to come again, to show us the way of life in his kingdom. May this be a reminder that one day he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the veil will be pulled back and will abide in the love of our God. So we pray, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Christ, you promised that death would not be the end but that you would return and you would create a world that is restored from the corruption, the chaos, and the brokenness that we now experience. You promised that there would be a day in which the kingdom would be on earth, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven.
May we long for that day. May we long for your future. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.